Good evening, thanks for coming. Welcome to Blockfabrik and welcome to Cut to Britain, Drop the Base. I'm Tadeusz Hermann, Managing Editor at Das Filter, site you're hopefully all familiar with. And we're going to do this event in English because everybody on stage, that's their mother tongue. So, and I'm going to break my tongue in a couple of minutes. So, we need to talk about the Brexit. We need to talk about feelings. We need to talk, talk about politics and the economy and power and corruption and lies. And so, we thought that <laughs> since music is something which is very close and dear to us all, we start with that. As a starting point, I'm sure we're going to drift off uh, within a couple of minutes and talk about whatever it is that comes to our mind, which is completely fine. Um, and before we get started, I'd like to introduce the panel. Right here we've got Melissa Taylor. She's the founder of Taylor Communication, a promotion agency founded in 2005, right? And since 2006, it's based out of Berlin. And you're mainly dealing with music, electronic music in particular, but also with events and other projects on the side. Yeah. We've got Matt Dryhurst. He's a musician. He's also a, let's say, a technology expert because you just started a thing called Saga, which is supposed to empower musicians uh, regarding their music and how it is being represented on the web. Am I right? <coughs> Thanks for coming. We've got Peter Kern. He is the founder of Create Digital Music. He's also an artist, an audiovisual artist. He's a writer, and his uh, texts and writings have appeared in very well-known publications all over the world. Thanks for being here. And last but not least, we've got Jay Ahern. He's the uh, CEO of Erupt, relatively new company selling sounds and sample packs for DJs, musicians, or to everybody who just likes collecting sounds. Um, you're also a musician. You've uh, run labels. You've worked in the music industry. Uh, whenever I have a question about the music industry, I give you a call because you normally come up with the answer straight away, which is great. Um, Yeah, did I miss something? Oh, no, you've also, um, you spent a lot of time in Ireland and you were a radio DJ and a radio presenter Sorry. as well. So you know the music industry inside out. So maybe it is a good idea to start with um, feelings. Because 10, 10 days ago, uh, Britain woke up to a very different looking future. If this future ever really materialized itself, nobody knows right now. I mean, today was another very interesting day. Um, so, let's just assume this thing is going through in whatever way or whatever variety or... What did you think when you woke up that morning and saw the results of the referendum? I cried. <laughs> Literally, I cried um, for about half an hour and then I pulled myself together and, yeah, I'm still really shocked and angry and disappointed in people, I guess, and our government. And yeah, that hasn't really changed in a week, I don't think. Still angry. Yeah, I didn't actually wake up because I stayed up all night following it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I was in a really bad mood the next day, obviously. Um, I went to sleep after I, Sunderland. Yeah, like, oh. yeah a, a couple of it 
A couple of things for me. I mean, I have a, I have a strange relationship with the UK because I'm English, but I've barely lived there. Um, so I already feel a little bit alienated from the place to some extent. The, the, the biggest thing for me was one, being shocked that I didn't see this coming. Yeah. Um, because I think most, like most people here, I try and pride myself on staying on top of things. Um, and for that to kind of hit you from the side was kind of a failure in process for me, or just a cause for reflection. The second part was also trying to understand my, how implicit I was in this happening. Um, it's working specifically within music, specifically within electronic music and, and music that kind of assumes a leftist tradition of seeing like a wholesale failure of the left also in this process, which is very, very easy to, to point to the right. And, it, and there are some quite horrible things happening in the UK at the moment. But to also see like, how did this happen? You know, when admittedly amongst younger people, it's quite, it's quite apparent that um, they voted overwhelmingly to remain, but what about everybody else? Because I refuse to believe somehow that everybody else is a racist. You know, there's these other allegations that come forward that there's something else that's being, there's some frustration there that I'm missing and that maybe the larger community is missing. And so rather than... Um, well, maybe they have just been manipulated. Like could could well be, yeah. Horribly manipulated. Could well be. I mean, but, but exactly, like what, what role can we as artists or people with some cultural clout uh, play in making things a little better. That was mm -hmm. like the immediate thing there, mm -hmm. being like, well, how do we change as a result of this? Because obviously something's fucked up. That's definitely going definitely to be something we're going to come back to later on. Peter, what were your first reactions? I also stayed awake, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe I was a bit tired when I was processing it, but I, uh, yeah, I was also really shocked and, and horrified, I think. And I, I didn't see it coming either. Um, so shock, actually, would be probably... Yeah. Best, best describe what I was feeling. I feel a bit better now, actually, but which I guess we'll talk about. Um, <laughs> but I was, no, I, yeah, I was, I was really horrified, and uh, I mean, also because you know, I think that that I had, I came here with some, not only because of optimism about Berlin, but optimism about Germany, and optimism about Europe. And um, this is a pretty big blow, I think, to that, to that optimism about Europe. Um, but I do feel I do feel better now. So not entirely better, <laughs> but it's really the feelings of anger. Uh, I think at uh, UKIP conservatives and Labour is not going to go away anytime soon unless someone gets their act together. Um, but it, no, I do. Feel, in the meantime, I do feel um, slightly more optimistic. Jay, what about you? Um, I was gutted. Uh, for me, it's first. I never thought it would happen, and I realized that. I think we were speaking about before, though. None of us here in Berlin thought that it would happen, except for you who were obviously speaking to, you were speaking to people based in the UK. We're obviously- No, no, no I, was speaking, I was speaking to people here. What, oh. I was, what, I was getting from, what I was getting from English friends, especially, certainly, especially from English friends living in England, they thought it was going to happen. Exactly. And, and then and some of the, but some of the people here said, you know, I, I, they, were seeing, they were seeing into some kind of mentality of their country people that I wasn't, I think. Yeah. And I, I think in a way here, we, everyone here is, exercising their rights to be European. And we have a certain consensus amongst our community. The thing that hit me, and this is funny, I mean, despite my American accent, I'm an Irish national. And I was born in the States to properly Irish family. And I had the ability to, to travel. I went to university in the UK because of the fact that Britain and Ireland had a common travel area. 
so we could cross borders, as it were. And then I sort of fucked up university royally in um, London, and my mother, God rest her soul, said, why don't you go to Dublin? At least you won't get into too much trouble there. <laughs> um, and I got involved in pirate radio, and I got involved in music, and I realized that independent music was not getting into Ireland because the major labels were there. They were run by Irish gentlemen who had um, connections to major labels in the UK worldwide, and they had created um, certain tariff restrictions classically on importation of music. And at the time, I got hired by a British company, uh, which is called Vital, now called PS, and my joy of bringing in independent music was bringing in Aphex Twin Records, Sigur Records, White Stripes Records as imports. Originally in Ireland, you couldn't do that. You had to do it through a major label and you had to have the Irish Rights Commission approve that. You had to pay a hefty tax to get those records in. And the fact that one, I enabled, well, PS has always been a Belgian company, but very UK based. And you know, so that company used its exercise, exercised its right to be European to see the Irish market. Those bands eventually became top 10 bands in Ireland. The major labels had a huge problem with us, and we turned around to the local Irish collection society and said to them, we're not going to pay you any money. We know that the people who are running the majors here also have an interest in your collection society, and that was a really smart retirement plan, but that doesn't have anything to do with us. And we pay our mechanicals in England, and we're allowed to do that by European law. That's not the fucking window now. So that, from a personal level, just struck me and I guess I'm, I've always been interested in independent music and um, that's always what I get concerned about is how is the independent going to survive in all this because we need to do anything we can to get by including multiple passports <laughs> and it might not as well I was speaking to Simon who runs Phonica Records today and he was saying that already they're having to put up um, that like 50% of their stock is European import. And because the pound's collapsed, it's like up to a, a pound on every single record that's of European origin. It's, this is already, it's fucking with our business. And records were already very expensive in the UK be before the referendum, yeah. right? So who knows what's going to happen to like small labels and small shops. It's, it's a real challenge. It's funny, I, I, I still keep a NatWest account. And a couple of weeks ago, I went to... Um, you know, these sort of uh, uh, Euronet ATMs around Berlin, and I stuck in my card, and the Euronet offered me an exchange rate. I always prefer, defer to NatWest to give me the exchange rate. And it said, oh, you know, if you'd like to take out X amount of Euro, we're going to give you an exchange rate of one, one pound two pence to the euro. Ooh. And I thought, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> so I was just like, bang. And it used to be 145. Oh my god. And I mean, in a way, if like, there was anyone in Britain who thought, okay, great, we can manufacture and then the pound will be lower and we can export, okay, that's going to work for a minute because so much manufacturing is also outsourced into Europe. Yeah, it's all in Czechoslovakia and Poland and Austria, and it's not, a lot of it's not happening in the UK. So. Yeah. But now we're making an argument for the common currency, which I didn't expect on this panel. <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoins. 
So taking, taking a step back, before the referendum in the run-up to the event, uh, there were quite a few articles about the possible ramifications or implications for the music industry. I'm, I'm sure you saw all these. They went from um, Days to Forbes, and they were all over. And basically, pretty much every of those articles identified four very difficult areas or problems on the rise. Funding, touring, pressing, and the big enigma of copyright. I found the touring one to be extremely interesting because A, more and more bands go on tour all the time. Yeah. And from what I know, which is very little, this is why I need your input, um, I find or I think that touring is already very difficult as it is. I mean, not only because of rising costs and, and stuff, and, but also it, there are a lot of VAT issues and double taxation and all these yeah. weird things. Visas. Visas. Well, we, work UK, permits. Yeah, right. yeah. But if you're an American artist going to the UK, yeah, no, you I'm, I'm, need a work permit, you need yeah. a visa. The same with going to the States. It's like right. $1,200 I mean, just so you can get a look in. Like. Right, but presum presumably we're imagining now that the, the rules would change for, for UK passport holders, right? This, um, this is the question. Exactly. That's, and and yeah. the other way around, into the UK. Right. Yeah. What could these ramifications be, apart from that everything is becoming more expensive, presumably? Um, visa costs. Also, there's uh, some people call it a carnet or a carne mm -hmm. um, to actually, you, you know, you're, if you're, I mean, obviously, if you're touring with a laptop and lesser things, you can sneak through airports. Not that yeah. I'm encouraging anybody to do that. But uh, the fact is, if you're a rock band and you've got amps and drums and, you know, lighting rigs or what have you, I mean, you actually need to um, declare those values in every country that you are entering because they don't want you to go there and sell it. Yeah. So, you know, that includes, so you've got the cost of visa, you've got the cost of a carnet, um, and also just in a, you know, in a, a Berlin example, I mean, think about all the artists, electronic musicians who want to go play in the U.S., and I mean, it's like what two thousand bucks yeah, for a U.S. visa the first time around, and then you've got to make it And it's it only work. for six months or a year or something. Yeah. And right, but at least the, the Brexit since there's not a since America is not part of Europe. Yeah. Um, so we're really talking about what like the, the question is really what would happen if it was just separating the U.K. from the rest exactly. of the European yeah. talent market, yeah. right? Um, I mean, is this also something that this is also something that affects music technology? I mean, I my so my feeling is um, my feeling is that that. Berlin, in particular, really benefits from having uh, Europe be open and open to the movement of talent. So that would affect artists. It certainly also affects technology. It affects the the, the, the job market here, the ability to go out and hire people from the UK without having to uh, sort out a visa. I think is a is a um, is a benefit to all of us. And um, yeah, I think both in music culture and in technology culture, you need a mix of people from a lot of different places. This is what allows collaboration and it allows you to have the, the greatest skill set possible. So obviously it would be a, a huge, huge problem. I mean, it seems to me that it would be a more significant problem for the UK than it would be for Europe. Um, I'm particularly interested as well, so I'm a touring musician. <clears throat> um, and I tour with my wife, who's American. Um, I can say for a fact, so we work kind of on the margins of culture in a sense. So a lot of the work that um, we do up until very recently wouldn't exist without EU funding for certain festivals, for example. So if you're talking about clubs where you have a very transactional relationship, 
generally the, the, the economics of it are quite simple, right? You have a person there playing records and then they're buying beer and then that beer money portion of it goes to the record and that's wonderful. But when you're talking about, in many cases, the kind of arts that aren't supported directly by the public, at least at first, or maybe it takes a couple of years for the, for the aesthetics or the, or the discourse to, to filter into the rest of music, which inevitably does, right? So you have your, your CTMs of the world will be a famous one here, where generally it tends to be kind of a harbinger of aesthetics that are coming in the next couple of years, for better or worse. Um, those communities disappear if you lose certain EU funding. And it's also gonna be really interesting as well, because there's a whole subset of the music industry which has thrived in the past five or six years. So your boomcat land yeah. of small independent labels putting out marginalized music, those projects th thrive basically off the back of playing around the EU, generally benefiting from state subsidy. And I'd be really curious curatorially what is to happen about that state subsidy funneling itself so uh, predominantly to English artists, which it has done. And in a way, in some way, it could actually be quite interesting to see what happens when Absolutely. you have you know, this very moneyed kind of ecosystem within the EU putting on these festivals, reconsidering supporting, you know, the, the dominant cultural force of London or, you know, or, or the UK in terms of their programming. Uh, it, it doesn't look good for, for the English in that equation, but it could also be interesting because that's one of the other things that irks me is that the dominance of English language music period um, is pretty annoying when the money's coming from the EU or the Polish government. <laughs> but, 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 but this, but this, funding, this funding question, though, is also that the UK is providing a, a disproportionate, uh, well, because of the size of the UK economy, the UK is providing a lot of the funding for some of these pots of money that, are, uh, that come from the EU, mm -hmm. some of which I'm also a recipient of. Sure, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't know. Well, there's a whole there's a whole scene that basically is is dependent on that, right? That that is a scene in and of itself. The kind of art tech, uh, discursive panel uh, uh, festival circuit that exists outside of hard ticket sales. That is a whole community, um, which you saw a rise of in the UK over the past yeah. couple of years. I mean, the UK definitely had that traditional, almost like an American style, pay to play type thing, and then cultural initiatives came through, and you know. Um, in a, in a smaller microcosm, like, you know, there was also going on, which is probably off the map, but like Northern Ireland, for instance, you know, topic which is kind of dear to my heart, my family's both Catholic and Protestant, by the way, um, is receiving lots of cultural funding from the EU. And now that's, that's gone. But when you think about, you know, um, music in the UK that has um, been given that lift, um, you know, that's going to put those artists in a really hard position because really? I mean, the British Council are going to have to step in yeah. or... And the thing is, I feel with those scenes in a way, they didn't really exist. I mean, aesthetically, you could argue that they existed, but they didn't exist in the same capacity before that funding was inje injected. Mm. I mean, really, the last five, six years, the fact that there's such a, a, a spotlight pointed toward those communities is a, a has a great deal to do with the EU investment. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what happens to those communities when it disappears hurts music aesthetically, too, or... Yeah, because the people who are going to lose money, it's not going to be Rod Stewart and these guys. All of the majors, they're going to sail through this. They have the, the capacity to survive. It is everyone who's yeah. independent. And, and on top of that, it's also up. Americans. I mean, the, there was a great book, and I always forget the name of it, um, talking about you know, the role that e, uh, European state funding played in the American avant-garde. So like, Cage didn't, no one wanted to support Cage in the United States until people in Europe and he was going to brought over as part of a charm offensive by the, the you know, and so many people in the United States who also benefit from this kind of um, EU state subsidized experimental um, funding 
you know, anything that hits the EU and kind of destabilizes that process is, well, is going to be interesting. Although, wait a second. Cage wasn't recipient until very late in his life. Cage wouldn't have been a recipient of this kind of uh, European Union uh, funding pot. This, that, that came later, right? So what, what, what you're describing is really kind of the culture of, of Europe as it exists. Exactly. I'm saying that, like, there's a, a great deal of artists, performing artists in the United States who wouldn't have an outlet for the kind of music that they're making if it weren't for the kind of... Uh, Support they're receiving in Europe, but I mean, I, I think I mean I think Americans will adapt to kind of a Europe that that, that to a Brexit, um, particularly if we're, we're talking about Ireland being in and possibly Northern Ireland and Scotland being in, um, and I, it seems to me that somehow even without this influx of cash from the uh, from the UK into the EU arts funding pots and so on, that that because of them not also having to allocate money back to the UK, that this is something that. All of the things that we're describing are things that the kind of American community and the rest of the European community ought to be able to adapt to. But I think it's a, it's a huge question mark for the UK, and this is even before we get into, the, into whether, in fact, uh, there will be restrictions on freedom of uh, labor movement. Yeah, which we just don't know. But we right. really don't know. And also, we also don't know if the EU is going to stay as it is currently. Exactly. With, you know, that, this is, that was this, more my if, point. Is this well, the that's first that's a larger and more frightening question. Yeah, well, exactly. So that's when like, I start to get upset again. And exactly. Not as <laughs> exactly. But Let's just skirt around it. But I think you know. But actually, I mean, to that question, I think part of what you know, even the even the fact that we're having this conversation now, we were all taking all of these things for granted. What what the what the whole Brexit conversation has done is begin a kind of wider appreciation of something that most people either took for granted or truly didn't understand, including, and you talked about the left, yeah. including many, many, many people on the left. I, I understand the criticisms of the European Union um, by people on the left, but I, but I can't fathom the lack of appreciation for the many things that the EU does for the left that are yeah. the kinds of things that they like, like environmental standards, raising environmental standards, you know, like raising labor standards, like supporting the arts and culture. I don't understand why that wasn't part of the conversation, but the, that has changed radically as of last week. Yeah, because what they, the, what yeah, the they Brexit has successfully after it happened, exactly. that's when the conversation started happening about what was good. Up until that, it was like they were afraid to tell people, you know, it, it, rather than the Remain campaign telling people you should stay in because these are all the amazing things that the EU's done. This is where the money has gone. Like showing people specific projects in their towns, you know. None of this was was shown. Instead, they did this like bullshit budget that was to to fear everyone into voting, and it completely backfired. Well, I've, I mean, I've worked on political campaigns before. Uh, the Remain campaign, if you can even call it a campaign, truly yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. is going to go down in history as Leaders. one of the worst political <laughs> yeah. advocacy movements of all time. Lemmings bumping into each other. So how, why was this campaign so badly done? Like, I think we're now in the corruption part or something. Oh, yes. um, because the topics are obvious. You know, people are unemployed. They, have, um, they see people coming in from other countries. And somehow there's this idea in their head that those people take away their jobs. That's not a story unique to, to the UK. That's happening all over the world. And no, that's, that's a story media, as old as... The media are feeding it to them like it's happening worse to you. Like when, even when they're shown numbers that show like, I don't know, 1.3 million people living in Europe, it's like, yeah, but there's 3 million people in the UK and they're all Poles and they're all taking your jobs. And it's like, it's being spun by the media. 
basically, let's talk about Rupert Murdoch. So, because he's, him and his newspapers um, are really responsible, I think, for a lot of people's feelings and how they related to it and how they understood it. And when you didn't have a strong voice from the other side, you had Jeremy Corbyn, who maybe didn't really care, and Cameron, who nobody trusts or likes, and a campaign that didn't really seem to have any focus or core, then you're basically letting media barons with very specific agendas to dictate everything. And that is what, that's what's happened. And it's, it's really terrifying, and it shouldn't... I would like to see ways that we can counteract that power now, because if we don't, it's going to keep happening again and again. People are going to get man manipulated, and it means that we don't have the voice that we should have. That's not democracy, being dictated to by some rich Australian who basically owns all the media. This is not a democracy. Lots of people think it is, but it's not. It was a great piece in The Guardian a couple of days ago where like, um, a reporter toured the country Uh, went for Bur to Birmingham, Manchester, uh, to Wales, and asked people, are you in or out? And at the end of the piece, he said something, or he wrote something like, God, we, the media, did everything wrong. Yeah. Yeah. They did. And, and the media is, is seen as being so divided as well, and the language is so divisive, and, like, I don't know, I, when I, even when I read some of, like, the like The Guardian or whatever, it's kind of weak in, its, in the way that it's um, putting across the points and, and the real issues there. Like, there's lots of intellectual discourse, but somehow it doesn't really hit home and they never really quite drive the point through. And then you have, like, really inflammatory language of something like the Daily Mail, where, where then you go to the comments section and you're like, It's terrifying. It's genuinely terrifying. The things that people will say when they're behind their keyboard, but these, the, the actual columnists, they're feeding that. And, and yeah, there's, there doesn't seem to be a voice against it. And that was, that was my big concern there. I mean, yeah. I was watching a, um, there's a guy we've worked with a lot, Nick Cernicek, who um, wrote a book called Inventing the Future, which was really worthwhile. But one of the one of the main kind of core principles of it is just this huge void that has been left by a, a weak left. There is no leftist platform. And this is where I also begin to sympathize with people because, you know, my family's from Birmingham. I can guarantee you well over half my family voted to leave. Um, there is an issue where, you know, if you have working class people who don't have necessarily access to information, you, you have solidarity that falls on either side of the coin. You either get nativist, nationalist, or you get some kind of worker solidarity. Mm. In the UK, post-Blair, I mean, post-Miliband. Yeah, exactly. Any the definition any of neoliberal. Well, exactly. I mean, and you get to this point where, at some point, it is really awful, and you can point at Murdoch, and it's absolutely true, but yeah. this is all being done in the clearing. Also yeah, like the it, liberal Democrats it's in a void that's like been left. It's a failure over. of the left ultimately to get its shit together and also to present some kind of a populist platform that people relate to and people can understand. Um, and this was one of the, the arguments that Nick and Alex put forward is, you know, when we talk about the left, the left is now in total reaction phase. Everything is, oh no, look at these terrible people, look at yeah, these terrible what people. what they're doing with we'll, Corbyn. Yeah, we'll point out this, we'll point out that. There is not a platform to say, no, look, actually here are some fundamental propositions that you can get behind that speak to the situation as things stand currently. We do live in a late capitalist or, you know, the idea of talking about workers' rights is a very abstract thing in 2016. Um, 
the left needs a new platform to capture people. And so in a sense, it's also a, a big opportunity um, to say, well, look, this, this really has not worked. Um, and to go back and bring up the old Marxist platforms as useful as they might be in, in rhetorically um, isn't going to capture the same kind of imagination um, with these people. Um, and Podemos in Spain is like a really good example of this, of, of a kind of modern, modern example of a populist left party. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, and, and that, without being able to do much about power and without being able to do much about, about the Murdochs of the world, sadly, that's something that we can do something about. And I'm very curious how, how the musical community can play a part in that. Um, yeah. Well, that, that's what I was going to add. I would really like to see the music community and also, as I said, the music tech community, uh, which are closely linked, really find a way to be more articulate on the value of immigration, uh, particularly speaking as an immigrant, that this is something that we can, we can all start to contribute to uh, more articulately, more forcefully. Um, it, was the, it was a total failure in the UK to talk about this. And, and um, just as Leave was so focused on, uh, as I understand it, just as Leave was so focused on the sort of economic issues, pocketbook issues, uh, and the status quo, they never linked that, or at least didn't link it enough to why this sort of immigration into the UK was valuable to the UK. That the, you know, the very opposite of, of what people were saying, that this was going to break the NHS, that the, the best way to, to bankrupt NHS and, and other uh, government services would be to get immigrants out. Yeah. And of course we have the same situation in Germany. Um, people like me are paying into the system and, and at, at my age not taking very much out. Um, and this could really secure the future of Germany. You know, so why we aren't saying that directly to me is mystifying. Why would we be playing defense on an issue that should be um, unass uh, unassailable? I, I, I'm I'm at a loss for why that's happening. Now, I mean, the I, I should add that I think it is just as this lesson really taught us that the the right looks frighteningly alike everywhere. You know, uh, and, and particularly once that we get into this just open xenophobia dimension. There isn't much difference between uh, Trump and UKIP and, and, and so on. Um, but the left, on the other hand, seems to look very different. Um, so when, uh, the, maybe one of the things that made us more hopeful was any complaints that any of us as a lifelong uh, Democrat, any complaints that we would ever have had about the DNC or the Democratic Party sort of vanished when we saw what Labor was doing over the past, over the past weeks, you know. Um, but I mean, but we have, you know, America has a different electoral system. Uh, Germany has a different electrical, electoral system, a very different party landscape. Um, and so, so, I mean, the left in Germany is, is to me very, very different than the left in the UK. Um, I also think they have a different approach. Like one of the things that really helped um, the Leave campaign was this god awful Brexit movie that right. they made. They and they had a premiere and they put it online for free and millions of people watched it. And it's like <laughs> bullshit from start to finish. Yeah. And you know, even John Oliver, like he did this amazing takedown of Brexit, and most of it was based on this movie. And that's all well and good, but the left then don't come back with anything like that. There's no, the, you know, there's no was songs <laughs> explaining things. There's no, well, like, well, the issue there's is that, no that, documentary, there's yeah. no movie. Was, it's was literally there, just silence. Was there any kind of, I mean, was there, any kind of, was there any like kind of equivalent of The Daily Show and things like that in the UK that, that was doing this sort of parody? I mean, because my, <laughs> why did it take until, it, because my, I mean, I don't know, if, I mean, I'm getting my, I'm getting my kind of media through YouTube and things, so I don't know if I, I didn't know if I missed something, but I kind of had the impression that the best sort of 
parody explanation of why the Brexit was a bad idea came from John Oliver yeah. in New York like and his English. team of American writers. Yeah. But was that like two weeks, but was it I mean, two I, weeks or one week I, before the vote? I right? don't recall really seeing anything and, and that is kind of shocking. But then again, I, you know, I don't watch English TV anymore, but I'm not really aware of anything like that. And I think one of the problems is you have the BBC, which are kind of um, on tenterhooks right now about whether they still have a mandate to be the BBC yeah, because they're constantly, constantly threatened with having the licence fees taken away with them, having control put under government, like basically having their independence taken away from them and the, like things like the Daily Mail have, have it out for them. Constantly, this, it's, they think that the BBC is a leftist conspiracy. I watch BBC News and I'm horrified by how right-wing it is, but you know, that's, it depends what you're being told. And the other danger too, I mean, I was arguing this the other day and I, I found the source of data that would give some weight to my argument, but I haven't read it yet, so I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I found it and I promised myself I'd read it. But also just this question of whether or not if a critique had come out, it would have hit the people that mattered in the case of the voter, you know, that where I see it with my parents, who I don't think would have voted leave. Um, haven't asked them about it. But they don't receive culture in quite the same way we do, and they're kind of in this strange little in-between nether space where they do still read the newspaper, they do still yeah. watch cable television. The internet represents to them a means to look up football scores and nothing further. They don't have access to the same kind of discourse, or hypothetically they do, but they don't seek it out. Mm. Um, and so there is also, again, what I worry about with the John Olivers of the, of the world is this idea of putting you in a false sense of security, of saying, oh, well, look, look, it's all over Facebook. It has so many, so many likes. There's a, a response comment, and I'm like, I don't know if that's actually hitting the people in their 50s who really swung this election. Or, or whoever it might be, you know? Absolutely. Um, and again, that's a big bind of saying, well, these networks have been built. We, probably everyone in this room, has some stake in or some influence on those networks, but do they matter <laughs> in, the, in this context? That's a question. But the, surely this is, this is where I think the music community can make an impact. I mean, we know, we know with another issue that was kind of about fear and identity, that, that the movement towards uh, GLBTQ rights has, has come from... Uh, people beginning to have exposure to people in that community or to begin to understand what marriage equality means, what it means for, for people to be in love and try to get married and, and, and deal with that uh, being gay. Um, I don't see why we can't make the same sort of argument for immigration and for uh, more uh, sort of pluralistic uh, identity. And um, that seems like an area that, that all of us contribute, can contribute to. I mean, this is, we wouldn't, in, in music in particular, we wouldn't have the history, we, music history wouldn't be as we know it today had it not been in particular for the European community and the kind of exchange of ideas that's, that's happened uh, throughout Europe for centuries, education, skill, the technology of building music instruments. All of these things have came from uh, an exchange uh, inside Europe, not to be kind of Western-centric, Western, Western -centric, but we, the closeness of this community was something special. You know, it takes a long time in, in, you know, in ethnomusicology, it takes a long time for musical ideas to get from one side of Africa to the other, or even to get from India to Indonesia. Uh, but in Europe, we've had just centuries of, of very fast exchange, and now it's accelerated to the point that you know, the sort of easy jet generation are, are moving ideas around in the course of a weekend. Well, and the, so and the academic community, which is one of the big, I've read some, some quote from uh, Stephen Hawking who was talking specifically about the academic community, how much this potentially hinders that, like the amount of freedom of information that happens between European institutions, um, or movement of information that happens. The, the word that keeps getting underlined here is community. That's what's very interesting. 
And that's, it's, 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 sometimes it's just so bloody obvious. I mean, Berlin as we know it today, in terms of our cultural space, is a result of the European community and creatives engaging with freedom of movement. And th that's been quite a powerful thing for us, but I think also as creatives, we're not the best at motivating sometimes, particularly politically. And um, it's also very much sort of guilt of the left because we look at things intellectually sometimes. I'm not saying the right isn't intellectual. Actually, yes, I fucking am. But anyway, the, the fact is, is that, um, you know, we, we just think, well, that couldn't happen. Just like our Irish friends, like, no, that'll never happen. And it did. So anyway, that's more of an emotional response. It's also a thing, and I think this is true across the board, is the leftist playbook is, is a very well quantified one. It, it's really this idea that, that leftist tactics haven't really, you know, altered themselves or, or in the, it, or, or adopted themselves to, to, to the modern world in the same sense, right? Yeah. Like protest on the streets. I was, I was listening to something yesterday about Occupy. Yeah. You know, it's like how much Occupy actually accomplished in, in as much as goodwill as it generated and as yeah. many, you know, as cathartic as it was to see people's frustrations manifest on the streets, what it actually ended up accomplishing was actually quite, quite minimal because the left has a really hard time putting forward a populist platform, mm. you know? Um, yeah, so... The left can actually be quite good at agitating and, and complaining and finding multiple different angles to do things, but w the left also recoils when someone comes forward and says, no, can we just find like 10 principles to push forward? Well, but, I mean, do you not did, think that's the because they don't lie in the same way? Well, I mean, because on. one the, of the, the things one of the, this is based on lies and like I mean, I mean, whoppers. But we're at, a, sorry, we're at a decision point though here, which is to say, I mean, one of the things the left built was the European Union. Yeah, sure. And it's not dead yet <laughs> because of the Brexit vote. So, so the question is what really happens next? come right? from the left. That was like a central populist um, reaction to the horrors of war. That It wasn't built by the left. It was built by everyone. And it's become, you know, it's become divided and the centre has, has uh, lost its way. And, and that's why it's in trouble. Um, yeah. My mother is an immigrant to the UK, and she voted to leave. So um, this this has caused me a lot of heartache and disappointment because I also don't understand how anyone who can have benefited in that way, who can have her daughter living abroad, can have German grandchildren, can still want to vote leave, especially as I think I put in an email to her, you're basically aligning yourself with pond scum. Um, <laughs> because I, I just... I, as even if you disagree with parts of the EU and the way that it's managed, like the the core of, of this idea of leaving it um, is based on xenophobia and and just <laughs> lies and hate, and that's that's why it really it's affected me a lot. That's why I cried when I found out because it it really feels like an, a rejection of kind of hope and peace. And it, the terrifying thing is that it will all fall apart now. I mean, besides um, economic considerations, I, I think one of the founding principles of the EU has always been this principle of solidarity. And solidarity is, def is definitely going away all over the globe. And I also think, however small or large a community is, solidarity is the kit which is holding everything together. So where the hell did solidarity go? Where did we took the wrong turn? 
Well, that, that's a that's a generation generational gap, right? So the, the, what what's happening is that the sort of older generation in lots and lots of places, including my country, including you know Germany, including the UK, um, also in Eastern Central Europe, France, so basically everywhere, um, the the old, the older generation is kind of deciding that that their interests are not served by the sort of collective cooperation. And the younger, but the younger generation is becoming more international and sort of seeing solidarity in a in a bolder light. And there's some kind of mis, there's some sort of communication gap somewhere through Rupert Murdoch-owned media outlets um, that 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 message isn't getting across. Um, but I mean, I'm I'm curious. What did you did you talk to your mother about? Kind of what motivated her? Was she able to articulate what she? I'm sure this wasn't a comfortable Not sure conversation. Where I want to go, uh, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, she's worried about immigration and she has very, I think she may have watched the Brexit movie and she has a lot of beliefs that are not based in fact. And I tried repeatedly to um, deliver facts to her and I was not able to get through. I'm, and I wasn't even asking her to change her vote. I asked her to, ab her to abstain. Um, because she's 71 years old, and it was like, I'm sorry, <laughs> it's not going to affect you in the same way. And um, yeah, she feels very strongly about it. And I'm like, but you're an immigrant. <laughs> and her, her answer to that was, yes, but I'm not really. It's like, no, you are. You're a South African immigrant, sorry. And um, she also doesn't see me as an immigrant or an economic migrant. She, like, I guess she has a very white she's Western an e She's an view. expat. She's an, I'm an expat, exactly. <laughs> it's like, um, just because I went on an easy jet plane with my passport doesn't really make me an expat. It's, it is, it's, it's a different way of seeing the world. And I'm, I'm proud of being an immigrant. And I know that I have value to the place where I am. I'm really happy that I'm bringing up multicultural, bilingual children. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I guess not everyone sees it like that when they're 70 years old. We've come to accept a right of freedom of movement. Yeah, and, and, and freedom of movement should, it's such a precious thing. It's, it's given us so much untold um, opportunity and that I'm what I'm most sad about is that this is going to be taken away from some people but this is why I'm hopeful is that I think that freedom of movement the issue that that labor wasn't making while they were desperately trying to lose this this intentionally lose lose this issue which they did very well um, you know I think that the freedom of movement I think that the freedom of movement argument is going to be a winner I think that all oh, right I think the but reason that everybody in the, before I don't know yeah. no but I kind of feel like but I think because they were trying to lose. But, I, you know, but, I but like it's also this idea that they really do believe that they can have their cake and eat it. Sure. We can have the, the, the single market access. We can uh, curb immigration down to only valuable young people who will pay taxes and never get sick. And anyone else, we're going to restrict their, their movement. I also just don't think part of the injustice like, in this is I don't think that there's any situation that justifies a yes no referendum on human rights. No. Honestly, I mean, and I saw I was living in California during Prop 8, the, the gay marriage bill, which fortunately was <clears throat> rectified over the course of time. But the idea that a majority vote where there's lots of money involved in certain situations and a lot of very perhaps undereducated people on certain issues get to take something away from a huge group of people based on you know where you're not even you're not even privy to to the nuances of their arguments this should it should not be allowed that that yeah. 
It should be made more complicated so that people have to think more deeply. Yeah. Well, but really. no, I mean, ho but I think I you, that's why you have elected no, officials, think, though, right? Yeah. It's like because it, exactly. But this is also why you need you need some brave leadership, right? And and if you look at if you look at human rights victories, human rights victories have always come from brave leadership. They haven't just come from simple a simple referendum vote. You know, yeah. that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, we're, the, if we want to talk about the Trump parallel, that we're still dealing with Trump because of, of Lyndon Johnson. You know, we're still, America's still dealing with the fallout from trying to make a brave decision on race. Thankfully, it seems like that there's no one is going to kind of get the axe for making a brave decision on, on gay rights. Uh, but, but, but yeah, these are absolutely not things that just came from simple uh, public opinion. And, um, and, and there, in, in all of these situations, you're up against some fairly powerful resistance. Um, now, the, the reason that I guess, the reason that I'm still remaining hopeful is that I, as the great words, in the words of the great Yogi Berra, it ain't over until it's over. <laughs> now, you know, now it is on the table, freedom of movement. And I think now there can be and needs to be a, a strong argument for the, uh, from the rest of the European community to say, no, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And it's, it's easy to forget too that, I, I, that um, I mean, there's a reason that so many of us are in Berlin and not London, and it's not just rent prices. It's that Germany is, a substanti is substantially friendlier to foreigners than the UK. And if people had been paying attention, I think, uh, to what was happening before this happened, uh, Britain had already moved away from the, the direction that I think the rest of us wanted Europe to go in, in terms of curtailing, uh, the curtailing the rights of, of immigrant labor, in terms of setting a higher bar for uh, uh, you know, what's necessarily necessary to be a skilled worker, which is vitally important to those of us in music and music technology, uh, because we, we aren't at the high end of the pay scale. Um, it is, it's hard to overstate how much better this environment is here in Berlin, and you know, thanks to the Berlin Auslanderbehörde and so on. Not to say that it's perfect, but I think um, the reason that so many of us are betting on Germany yeah. is because we recognize in the German government and the uh, German people something that's more positive than we're getting from yeah. um, countries like the UK that's and sometimes countries like the, the US. One of the things I said to Matt earlier, because actually Theresa May, if she becomes the next prime minister, she's the woman who's basically responsible for it, for raising the threshold of like what you need to be earning to bring your spouse into the country and I don't think I would be able to move back to the UK if if we were outside um, the EU because I I don't earn enough money in the UK to be able to support my spouse to to sufficient level you know already that's a basic thing that I would have taken away from me and that's another thing that I got angry with my mother about because she wasn't judged in this way um, she didn't have this kind of threshold when she moved as a spouse to the UK. Um, but we didn't, I don't think that we talked about it as a music community, and we're, it's good that we're having this panel now, but we, this, this is something that we need to talk about more. So the Brexit is kind of confusing and vague and mired in weird backstabbing UK politics that none of us can understand, uh, but there's an international conversation to have about, about things like, um, you know, what, what kind of community do you, do you create for freelancers and so on. And I, um, you know, I, I think that, um, and this is a conversation that can happen between the left and the right. Obviously, Merkel is not a left-leaning politician, but this is a this is a conversation that that we can have with her government, you know, um, and and have some kind of common ground on. We're not dealing with a 
Donald Trump-like character running Germany yet, and if that happens, I don't know what cave I'm going and hiding in, but, um, <laughs> you know. Um, I but, know a nice but, one in Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this, this is something that we could start to talk about, and I think it's something that we, you know, because we can talk about freelancers and small business and about people's livelihoods, I think we can appreciate that the elder generation is concerned about their health care and the, the kind of healthcare su support that they receive, and that's something that's deeply important to them, and that's also something that, that we can appreciate as artists. I had actually had an art history teacher in college who wanted our college to take a position, this is in the 90s, um, to, take, to take a position on then uh, First Lady Hillary Clinton and uh, uh, supported uh, uh, you know, single-payer healthcare, because it, it, his argument was healthcare is the single most important issue to artists. You know, um, so this is this is something where we ought to be able to find a way to reach some of these people. We shouldn't worry about whether they're left wing or right wing, or if we think they may be xenophobic. We should actually start to 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 defeat some of these lies that keep going around. Yeah. And the the biggest lie you could ever tell people is that is that immigration is going to take money out of their out of their pocketbook. <clears throat> and I'm, clearly, that's what people believe, and it's just flat out wrong. Yeah. What else will be on the agenda within the next? couple of weeks. I mean, getting a conversation started within the music community about how to organize itself and to react to the reality out there is one thing. What else could there be done? Just to go back, I'm kind of a broken record, but most of my partner and I's interest has been in looking toward new options and alternative, viable alternatives that can be presented by the left. Um, and so it might seem a little bit abstracted from the, the nuts and bolts of this conversation, but I think it's, it's valuable. Um, yeah, and because fundamentally it comes down to me too, of, or comes down to trying to understand what we are, um, because I also believe quite strongly, and this is a bit of a rant, but you know, there was once a time where you could look at the electronic music community and say, oh, well, they stand for this. They stand for certain principles. The clubs, when you go into those environments, they, they represent X, Y, Z. I don't know whether you can say that across the board now. And I think there's a lot of assumed politics in places where you know you talk about neoliberalism and so on and so forth, or, or the fact that scenes are run by mm. money that you know <laughs> very few people take the time to to look into. I think it's really paused for me to think: Well, what are we? What do we actually stand for? Um, and what are we actually willing to accept? And what can we build? Um, what can we build that, 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 we, that we could represent and feel proud about? Um, and of course, there's lots of good things, but, but I, I also recoil a little bit to see you know, people, people kind of put their hands up in the air and be like, well, how did this happen? And I'm like, well, you know, honestly, it's like a lot of what maybe you fell in love with in, about this community isn't quite the same as it, as it maybe was, or, or maybe I've never experienced, because I'm below a certain age. Um, you're saying if some sort of failure of the music community is, has For brought sure. about the Brexit? No, I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying that the, the Brexit gives me pause to think of um, how much one might be going with a certain flow, not necessarily thinking about the implications of, of one's actions. Um, of course, there's no, there's no correlation between the music community and the Brexit itself, but actually, I don't know. But, But if the music if the music community has any value whatsoever um, in terms of in terms of cultural output or influencing uh, opinions, of course there must be some correlation between that. Yeah, where are the um, angry videos? Where are the protest songs? Or, or you know, the where soundtrack? are the angry rants from you know artists that I don't really I don't really see very much. There were a few like 
um, smatterings the week before and after mm-hmm. there was some angry and even if there were people records, even if there were people wanting to do that where's the funding enabling them to do it because we've all accepted that we don't pay for music anymore for example so I mean there's all kinds of, of conversations the funding now is also corporate we're taking we're taking a lot of corporate funding like a, a scary amount of um, parts of our scene that we value are owned whether we know it or not by by larger corporations and and everyone's thinking about advertising money as well and so we're not as free as we think we are well hold on <laughs> this is sounding like a sort of an existential <laughs> some sort of like existential black hole <laughs> that, sucks, that sucks in every fear anxiety about everything it was <laughs> well i mean i you know i I, I'm kind of skeptical about always, I, I, you know, I think protest songs and things are great. Um, I, I don't think that everyone needs to make one, you know, I think. No, like, not like, unless they I also think quite, to, quite frankly, a lot of the people who voted leave may not even really like our music, so a protest song from us is not going to change their mind. What, I'll I, bet what a lot I would say, them, though, I bet points. a lot of them did in the 90s. I'll bet you a lot of them did, did in the 90s, and I'll bet you a lot, like, also, the criminal justice bill, uh, a lot of the awareness around the criminal justice bill <coughs> relates entirely to the work of KLF and bands like that and their videos and their anger, Autecra. Like, this, this the, it galvanized people. I'm, I'm probably politically aware today because of a lot of what happened at that time, because it opened my white middle class young girl's eyes to what what was going on in my country and so I don't believe that it's not important I do think people should speak out and I do think artists have a big role in that I've seen it we're also taking control of infrastructure because it's not just I mean I'd I'd also sympathize with the idea that protest songs have maybe limited um, kind of kind of limited scope at this point in time but why why do they have limited scope at this point in time why I, I, I'm just, I'm going to be extreme, just not to disagree, well, maybe to disagree with you all. Um, I'm going to be extremely tactical and say that, you know, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that people necessarily, I mean, people like Brian Eno did come out and say, uh, you know, remain, I'm not sure that people really cared what Brian Eno thought about the Brexit. And, um, I mean, especially since, since virtually everyone in the UK came out and tried to support Remain and it didn't work. I'm not sure that that's, I'm not, I'm not sure that that... Well, they did it quite late, though. Oh, that's, that's, that's for sure. Yeah. I feel like there was a lot of, like, um, support for Remain, like, the day before the vote. Well, look, um, one, one of the things... There's been a concerted, like, speaking out and effort to get across the points of why they cared about it over a period of weeks when we're being bombarded by like really disgusting propaganda and lies and terrible movies. Um, you know, there wasn't like this concerted effort by, by our community or, and, or any of the like artistic creative community. I'm like... One thing actors. I keep coming back to, and, and again, it's not, it's not necessarily my generation, and I, I just put this out to anyone who may have experienced this, but for some reason I had this moment with the prodigy recently. <laughs> I was like remembering something. And I was going on YouTube. Yeah, and I was going on YouTube and I'm like, oh, prodigy live in Coventry, prodigy live in Doncaster, prodigy live and looking at the network of shows and how, you know, and there's five, six, seven thousand people in Coventry. These are all leave areas. What has happened that we no longer have that reach. But we know that one of the things that we know that we know what's happened though. We know that, that, that what's happened is that the news media has shifted so that they're getting their news from, from these what are essentially uh, corporate controlled media with a very yes. specific political agenda that was lying to them. 
And we know that because they were lying to them that it was the, it was the immigration issue that they really didn't understand. And these were places that didn't even have large numbers of immigrants who somehow believed yeah. that immigration was costing them money when in fact getting rid of the immigrants is the one thing that will cost them the most money. So I mean, I think, you know, I think in kind of in political, I mean, all this other kind of deeper philosophical cultural stuff is important. But if, if, we, if, you just want re, if you just want some results, if you just want to lose less, and we're talking about things that are coming up in the near future, <coughs> if we would like to lose less, then the two things that need to change are uh, sort of messaging and, and tactics. So the, the messaging, I, yeah, I think you're exactly right, that people were way, way, way too late. One of the most important things about messaging in politics is to get your message out first. And there was no message from yeah. Remain, and then it came right before the vote, and that's too late. And then the other thing is to, to find some, some kind of tactical things that you can do that are material that you know will actually win instead of lose. And so I think that there is an opportunity for all of us to do that. We are all benefits, if we are all getting benefits from the European Union and from uh, freedom of movement and from arts funding, we need to be really, really explicit in talking about what that funding is, and even if it's uncomfortable, and even if it means talking about kind of bureaucratic stuff that we don't like, uh, we need to do that. And so those of us working on um, you know, projects like with CTM Festival and so on, and the, when, when we are getting EU funding, we should, we should really be really clear about the fact that we're getting EU funding. And we have to find some way of getting that message to outlets that might not normally have it. So I think anything that we do in the arts that reaches people outside of our usual bubble is also very, very beneficial. And uh, you know, the other thing that we can do in, in Berlin and that people were starting to do, Native Instruments actually came out, the, uh, also too late, right before the Brexit, and talked about the fact that, that, that they have an international team and that they have people that, that benefit from, from this freedom of movement and that that allows them to attract the talent that they have and do what they do. This is something that we can certainly talk about in the tech and music communities in Berlin. And I think we can start to get that, I th start to get that message, at least to people on our side to make sure that they go out and vote here in Germany. And we can also make sure that people on our side go out and vote in the United States where a referendum on xenophobia is being held the <laughs> first Tuesday in November. Um, and, uh, we, and this is even something that there are many, you all know Americans, I expect, not only me, um, you can make sure that all of your American friends remember that they have the ability to vote and actually that votes from abroad. So when I mean, we have this international class, you know, um, we have this kind of international people who understand freedom of movement and people who understand uh, being an immigrant and people who understand what a more open international world might look like. And they're not terribly politically active. Um, so that's... The, one of the easy things to do would be to get them to be more politically active. So it's worth going to all of your American friends and asking them, have you filled out your form for the last state that you were a resident in? Um, and uh, um, did you make sure that you've gotten a ballot? Are you making sure that you will send that ballot in? Have you researched not only the not voting for Donald Trump part, but also kind of other people whose names may appear on the ballot who may be important? And votes from abroad have actually decided elections in the United States. We theoretically could have decided the, the uh, Florida vote in 2000 and decided the president of the United States, but they very routinely uh, decide senators and, and people down the ticket. Um, so this is something that all of you can do, even if you're not American. You can bug Americans, because I think we are deserving of being nagged right now. It's the sort of next frontier. Just going back to something that Matt said in terms of the prodigy, and it just kind of struck a chord in terms of musical, music as a sort of radicalism. And I think in some way our, our culture has evolved over the recent years that we're in a comfortable situation. And I feel that, you know, 
for radicalism, you need a galvanizing force. There is surely one right now. In my own experience, though, was the prodigy struck me as like, Years ago when I was living in Ireland, I got this invitation to go to Belgrade, Serbia, just after uh, the fall of Milosevic. There was a radio station there called B92 that had been um, sort of influential in the downfall of Milosevic. They'd been raided by the police. They'd had all sorts of issues. They played a lot of prodigy. And, um, and, and, now, and now actually owned by like a really right-wing corporate entity and it's I was going there. So you, you had a culture, and in terms of like, you mentioned CTM and cultural monies going places, I always think it's great that in a way cool music, and in some ways radical music, gets that funding. I think that's amazing. But I get to see it firsthand in my own little way. I went to Serbia and the Americans, uh, the, uh, the EU, various commissions, the British Council had given these younger um, people who were involved with B92, the chance to promote cultural events there, electronic music events. They were inviting people like Vladislav Delay, and you know, and the idea was is that the, um, they decided that um, if the younger people had more of a connection to Europe, that that would erase the, somehow move them farther away of what had gone wrong in Serbia. And it was funny because I've made friends there, I've always stayed in touch, and I go back. And every year when I go back, I notice, for better or for worse, more and more hipsters, more and more uh, younger people who are ridiculously connected to electronic culture through the internet. And also, I'm seeing a rise of the right again, which is funnily enough through the tabloid press there. And in a way, our medias are disenfranchised. How we get it, reading traditional broad press or reading online, you're talking about different communities that are reading it. And certain communities are more mobilized in the traditional structures, which is what Rupert, Rupert Murdoch has seen. Um, and that is worrying to me. Our, which part is worrying about worrying you? That we consume our, just because of happenstance, we generationally consume our media in different ways. Some of us are on the, to use a word, German word, Schnittstelle of different generations of, of how we consume. But the fact is we're hearing different things. Yeah. Um, a lot of it, in a way, to the way I consume, is a lot of word of mouth as well. What people tell me what they've read, what they point me to. Because in a way we're overloaded with media and, our, and that is interesting in terms of, despite the fact that there is, I'm not saying the oncoming of a digital age, it's fucking here, you know, but the fact is, is that still these older methods, which are in some ways quite charming, can still be abused. For sure, and, and also the one directly impacts the others, right? Like budgets for investigative journalism on TV and in newspapers have been ravaged. More and more resources are being pushed towards social media to appeal to younger people. And so it's cheaper. Want, yeah, it's cheaper and it's also... But I think it's harder to, to uh, define, um, like, for, for instance, my mother sent me something to back up one of her viewpoints about how... Um, I can't even go into it. Anyway, um, she sent me something, and I, I wrote back to her, you realize that this is a right-wing conspiracy website. You, and she, 
the way that the information is presented in these websites, you cannot tell the difference between whether you're reading information from a reputable news source or if you're reading the ravings of a load of crackpots. And this, this is also a problem, especially for people who don't necessarily question or aren't... They're just not as... Um, I, don't, I don't even exactly, know how to yeah. say it. But um, this is a problem. And this is a problem in the radio networks and also online because there's, it's, it's easier to fool people and it's easier to get out um, a, a message that, that is untrue. Through economics and as, let's call ourselves digital creators or curators, you know, we have had to do it you know, faster, cheaper. We moved to Berlin because our rent was cheaper. And yet at the same time, our community has been disrupted in terms of the UK, country near and dear to me, through traditional medias. I mean, the, what was it in Trafalgar Square, the protests with Joe Cox, they were flying planes over Trafalgar Square with banners, leave. I mean, fucking plane banners still work, kids. That's fucking unbelievable. But, <laughs> well, and we know also the sort of campaign finance issue in the States is uh, this is really down to TV advertising. So we know that that's still... Is. But, yeah, but yeah. I mean, some of the stuff is also spreading through social media, though, right? I mean, this is not... But, but one of the things that came up is that um, lots of people who really didn't see it coming, they were then questioning, like, the Facebook algorithm. How is it that... that I had absolutely no clue this was coming because all I saw on my feed was people like in, 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 not seeing anything dissenting unless you were friends with my mother. And, um, and literally, like, they, they, it left people questioning. But like, again, this comes back this, to... This algorithm, like what we're being fed and how we're being manipulated in the flow of information. And, and that is, that's, that's a worrying thing because... Any information that's being manipulated is going to give you a distorted worldview, and that's that's then going to have consequences. It's true, and and then this again comes back to responsibility as a community, because you see Facebook as this somewhat neutral entity, yeah, which of course it isn't. It's it's, a, it's an advertising network. Um, it you know it, it scrapes information from anybody anybody using it. It's quite a, it's quite a, a, a malignant actually source. We're more than happy to, to work within this. Like if, if somebody if somebody within the music community would take on this issue and promote awareness of the filter bubble, for example, or pro, promote awareness of such things, that could actually have a huge impact. Because um, these are conversations people don't have until it's too late. And they're like, oh, well, how did I not see anything? Well, it's like, well, it doesn't work like yeah, that. Yeah, it also <laughs> means that when you, when you think you're saying something to your network, you're not because they're not seeing it because their algorithm is shutting you out because you're a dissenting voice in their life and they don't want to hear it and Facebook knows that and and that's something that we need to recognize and like take on well right we so we have two parallel two parallel trends one was the sort of and rupert murdoch had a huge huge hand in the history of this of course one was the kind of creation of cable news networks that supported kind of a created a product that was really based around being less neutral yeah. and this is something that both the right and the left have engaged in to varying oh, extents um, but the idea of i mean it was probably was, at some level it was something whose time had come the idea of kind of getting rid of this uh, 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 you know, godlike, neutral voice was something that probably had to happen. But what it was replaced with was just much worse, which is people getting news that kind of supported their opinions, whether or not that was based on fact. And I think that the left engages in this some as well. Yeah. Um, 
and so we have that in news media, and and uh, and then we have well maybe maybe three parallel trends. We have that in news media. We have what's happened with the with the internet in general, and specifically around Facebook, where it becomes an echo chamber that also does the same thing. And then we have um, what we were calling in the 80s and 90s the culture wars, which is this kind of who can spread ideas faster. And and in some cases we you know our side as we conceive it has won, like it has in in marriage equality. Yeah. Uh, not one everything, but has made you know progress, um, and and I guess in spreading hipsterism, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. been some success. Uh, but, uh, but that's what these, these platforms. I mean, social media in terms of like promotion, amazing. What the availability of you know, okay, fantastic. But then it becomes controlled, and it. And I think a lot of the time it's better at um, selling products than it is at selling ideas. And, mm. and maybe we're not aware of that and how it's not getting through and, and that this is something that needs to be addressed and thought about more creatively. Well, I write for an ad-supported website, so selling products is not, to me, is not <laughs> totally <laughs> incompatible. No, but I mean, like, if you take something like Instagram, mm. um, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of like a vacuum of pretty girls and food, and there's no, there's no substance to it, and yes, it's hugely successful. Um, they're courting advertising now. They are controlling your, what you see as well. They have their algorithm, whether you like it or not, and it's, it, I, I just think that that's, um, that's something we need to be aware of, that, that our ideas and our core beliefs we may think that we're articulating that through what we're projecting, but I don't think that many people are. And and a lot of the time, this kind of communication is taking taking over the place of real communication, really speaking, really really exchanging ideas, and and that's a problem. And maybe we need to go back to basics and just talk more. We're talking through. But it's funny. I'm just Less going. <laughs> but it. That's where the European, the European Union has been effective in terms of dealing with bigger companies, particularly on um, a creative level. I mean, it was interesting a few years ago in music. I knew we followed it, but uh, was it um, EMI, the EMI catalog? Sony was trying to buy it. Universal was trying to buy it. Ironically, in Britain, gentleman Martin Mills, who owns Beggar's Banquet, quite politically active, um, number of organizations, AIM, Paula, you know, he leaned on, he, he leaned on, um, he's also an advisor to the Queen, though, but he leaned on the British government, he leaned on the EU, his organization did, and said, look, this can't go through, because this is absolute fucking monopoly. And he's right, you know, major labels are shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. You've got Universal being quite aggressive, trying to increase their market share. Why they try to do that is quite simple. If you increase your, increase your market share in a world where you can't quite figure out how the monetization works. You can say my market share is this, therefore give me that percentage of what you make. That's how they approach SoundClouds, Spotify's, YouTube's. And the fact was is that the Europeans stepped in and said, okay, Universal, you can buy the MI catalog, but you've got to divest of 75% of it. And 75% of that catalog, including the Kraftwerk catalog, I believe, significant Parlophone records, for instance, I'm sure that had to go to competing companies. And that was interesting. I thought the European Union played a blinder with that one. And then recently, if you look in British politics, there are negotiations with Google over tax. Mm -hmm. That didn't go so well. So Britain's on its own. 
Well, and if you're a fan of some of the things that we're talking about, if you're a fan of freedom of movement, of strong freedom of movement, if you're a fan of strong regulation, if you're a fan of intervention with media ownership and uh, regulation of uh, Google and Facebook, uh, you're more a fan of France and Germany than you are of the UK, right? So, so I think, you know, independent of the Brexit, there's some real questions to be answered about what role uh, Britain has in, in, in European leadership. Um, my, the, the, the reason that I started to feel better was beginning to, and now I was wrong before, maybe I'll be wrong again, but beginning to feel like a lot of the kind of status quo of the relationship of the UK to, uh, to Europe in terms of regulation, in terms of access to the market, and in terms of the current kind of status quo um, for um, um, migrant labor, that those things seem to, seem to me to be reasonably safe, I hope. Yeah. Um, partly because it's very, because it's, there's a strong disincentive to upset any of that. Yeah, for all they, of the they, reasons that we've now finally all started those talking old about. people from Spain coming home, that's for sure, because <laughs> that would be a massive strain on the NHS. So they, they really, they actually do have to, to weigh that up in their negotiations. One thing I wanted to say is, like, one of the things that we've been waiting for for a long time is, like, um, uh, digital rights uh, across the whole of Europe and ideally across the whole of the world and this negotiation has been going on for what 10 years or something and not really getting to a point where we have it but now this if we Brexit this will set back the UK artists um, and possibly all of the European artists and maybe it's going to take another 10 years by which point we won't even recognize the internet but as all the time that this negotiations aren't happening or aren't concluding it's making it very difficult for people to collect money that they deserve. And it's also making it difficult for licensing for basic things like internet ads and, you know, advertising that's used in Germany and in America. And until we have, like, just a basic um, digital rights agreement, then that's, that's not going to be resolved. And people, yeah, they're not going to get paid. And so this has set that back quite considerably, I would imagine. I was hoping we could end on a more <laughs> hopeful note. Yay, Germany! <laughs> I would like to thank you all. It was very, very interesting. I very enjoyed it. I hope you did too. And I would now like to open up the round for questions, if there are any.